Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning. We are uh, starting 2 Corinthians today. And uh, yeah, woohoo, new book, right? And 2 Corinthians is a different kind of letter. You'll, you'll see if, you, if you've been uh, you know, kind of reading ahead to, to be familiar, and I continue to encourage you to do that. I never know how much I'm going to cover. You know, I couldn't tell you how far t- today. I couldn't tell you how far we're going to get next week. But if you, you know, read several chapters ahead, the, this will always be a richer time for you if you're already familiar with the text. Because we don't read every, we're not doing a verse-by-verse study here. We have slowed down quite a bit. Uh, but if you're, if you're already familiar with the text, then the references I make will be clearer to you. You'll grasp this stuff more quickly. So I encourage you to go ahead, read 2 Corinthians. Uh, you know, read several chapters ahead, like I said, and do it again and again. And that way you'll also be more likely to catch me in an error for which you get a prize. I don't know what the prize is. Nobody's ever caught me in one yet. So I haven't had to think too much about it. Just kidding, just kidding. But uh, in some ways, which I think you'll agree with if you have read this, it reads much more like a letter uh, than, the, than you know, for a letter from the heart than 1 Corinthians did. And you remember the setup. Uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in response to some things he had heard, some things he had observed, and most specifically, some things that had been asked of him in a letter to him. The Corinthians, some people had collaborated, saying, hey, we need to ask Paul about this stuff. So they send a letter to him, it's delivered, and Paul is sitting there with that letter as he writes the return letter, which we call 1 Corinthians, and where he's answering questions. And it kind of reads like that in some places. Okay, now I'm going to address this. Now I'm going to address this. And he goes through this, several subjects and corrections, and um, in this case, he has visited them again, and he has encountered opposition to his ministry. So there's quite a bit in this letter. It's woven through the whole letter. It's not just in one spot where Paul is defending his apostleship. But the tone is really amazing. He's not lording it over them. He stresses again and again that his heart, what he really wants more than anything, is to enjoy this loving, unified relationship that God used him, uh, that, with, with the church that God used him to birth there in Corinth. Uh, he wants there to be mutual boasting. This is his heart. He wants to be able, uh, he wants the people in Corinth to say, you know, Paul, he's our apostle. He's our founder. He's a great guy. He loves us like a father. And he wants to be able to look at Corinth and say, those Corinthian Christians, you know, I'm blessed that God actually used me to speak into their life. That's my church. Like a father say, that's my boy. And the boy says, that's my dad. We want we, this mutual boasting is what Paul longs for. Uh, but because he is an apostle and because they have been carnal in so many ways, he has had to issue some stern rebukes, both in person and in letters. We read some of those in 1 Corinthians. He addresses these things in a very, sometimes a harsh, but certainly a very clearly corrective, rebuking tone, uh, where, he, where he talks about sectarianism, sexual immorality, gender fluidity, conduct at the Lord's Supper, and misuse of spiritual gifts. He has corrective things to say about all of these things. And uh, notice in all of those things, he never just wags a finger and says, shame on you. This is wrong. You shouldn't do this. He always tells them how to do it right. 
this is especially important to recognize uh, when it comes to the spiritual gifts. It doesn't say you're doing it wrong, so stop doing it. Say so you're doing it wrong, so here's how to do it right. Check yourself. Check your motives. The one exception where he doesn't say, well, here's a better way to do it, <laughs> is the man who's having sexual relationships with his stepmother. He doesn't say that's the wrong way to do it. Here's the right way to have a sexual relationship with your stepmother. He said, this is wrong, and you just need to stop associating with this guy. Kick him out of the church for now. Ban him from the Lord's table. This isn't right. You shouldn't tolerate it in your midst. And then hoping that as he endures the consequences of being disfellowshipped, uh, that, that he will, uh, he'll come to repentance. And this is going to be important. You know, this will be important today because of something we read here in 2 Corinthians. Again, everything else is corrective except for that one. It's, it's just flat. It's pretty much a condemnation. He flat, he, what he says is even a pagan knows this is wrong. Shouldn't even be spoken of in your midst. Now, he starts this letter this way. First, uh, second, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy uh, is mentioned there. He's, he's with Paul, but he was also with Paul in the early days of the founding of the church of Corinth. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. And then we read on, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Here's how I would boil those uh, few verses down. We are blessed to be a blessing. If we have been through something and God has delivered us, one of the main reasons for that, one of the main purposes, is so that we can be a source of encouragement and deliverance and salvation to other people. Right? Why does God save us? Why does God heal us? Why does he bless us? Why does he console us? Why does he comfort us? Because he is a loving father who loves his kids. But also... Because he desires to equip us to be a source of healing, comfort, consolation, and salvation. Those things are not separate. It's not either or. He saves us because he loves us, and he saves us because he wants to use us to save others. We are blessed to be a blessing. In verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted, us, granted to us through many this is pretty clear, and we're going to come back to this, so I'm not going to say a lot about it right now. But one of the things he's saying is, uh, just so you know, the sufferings that we've suffered, I'm not just referring to those lightly. We have been in situations recently, he's saying, where we despaired even of our lives. 
We felt as we went every step of the journey that we were under the sentence of death. We thought we had seen suffering before. We thought we had felt threatened before. At this point, though, it was low. Uh, the, the outlook was bleak. But he said this wasn't turned out not to be a bad place to be. Because once we were truly faced with death, the only place we had left to look was to the one who offers resurrection from the dead. He says, this is the good that, brought, that, that was brought out of this, that we learned to trust completely in God who raises the dead, so that even death itself did not deter us from our ministry. Like I said, we're going to come back to something uh, in that passage in a minute. At least I think we are. Uh, but then he goes on to say, I won't read every, every verse here. He goes on to say that he has not been unclear or deceptive in any way. He's preaching the clear truth of the gospel, and he expresses the desire that as they continue to listen to him, continue to read his letters, that they will come uh, to understand him more and more fully. And then he explains that his original plan was to visit them on the way to Macedonia. This is, this is a really interesting thing. This is, again, it's one of those really personal things because he spends a long time explaining this. He says, I was, was going to go to Macedonia. My plan was to visit you guys on my way to Macedonia. And then come back and visit you on my, way, on my way back from Macedonia. But his plans changed. Let me read verse, uh, beginning in verse 17. He says, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ, in Christ has anointed us, sorry, and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is super important because our words and our commitment to keep our word should reflect the unchanging nature of God. Our being very flip and careless with our word and with our promises, uh, our flip-flopping, should never cause anyone uh, to have a reason to doubt the concrete nature of God's promises. So what he's saying is, when I said I was coming on the return trip, I meant it with all my heart. It wasn't just, I didn't say that to make you feel good, and I really hadn't made up my mind. It wasn't a yes to you, but in my mind it wasn't really a yes. I absolutely planned to come see you, but I changed my mind. I didn't do it lightly. He says, and that's important. He says, you need to know that God's promises don't change like that. I said I was going to come, and it's important for you to recognize that I know I said that and that I really did mean it and that I changed my mind. Now, let me tell you why I changed my mind, beginning in verse 23. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who was made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, 
I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you, sorry, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Now this is, there's a lot packed in here. So let's start with what, what he starts with. He says, uh, I, the bottom line is, I, I came, I, I chose not to come because I wanted to spare you. It's not that I didn't want to see you. I don't want you to think, yeah, I was going to come, and then I got mad, and I didn't like you, and I didn't want to see you. But I knew that the, there was strong potential for my arrival in Corinth again would bring sorrow to some people. What's he talking about? Something happened during his earlier visit. And he says, because he had issued such a strong rebuke. Now, here's where things get a little bit uh, speculative. What we, what many scholars, I should say, I don't really know. They say that what we have is an unrecorded visit to Corinth, one that's not referred to in the book of Acts, uh, that people call the painful visit. He has spent some time in Corinth that was painful for reasons that we'll address here in a minute. And that as a result of this visit, he wrote a letter, which is not this one. You know how we said second, first Corinthians is really second Corinthians? Second Corinthians might likely be fourth Corinthians. There's a, there's a letter that is called the severe letter. We don't have any documentary evidence of its existence. It's alluded to in this letter, but never flat out says. I mean, it, let me put it this way. The severe letter that Paul refers to might be first Corinthians. I kind of lean that way, and I'll explain why in a minute, and ultimately it doesn't matter. Our faith doesn't hang on it, okay? It's just interesting. But we do have you know, a painful visit. He wrote a severe letter, and, in these, and, and we, see, we see him talking about it a lot in this book, his apostolic authority. When he came to this church, he loved them so much and wanted to see so many wrong things right, uh, made right, he exercised his authority as an apostle. And here he recognizes, look, if I come back, at this time, it's going to look like, here comes the apostle again to straighten us out. I'm just coming to exercise authority over you. And I don't want you to think, I don't want you to think that I think you can't do this without me. Your faith comes from God, just like my faith comes from God. We are in this together. You can hear God. You can obey God. And you can do it without Paul. And I'm going to trust him to be a father and a counselor to you. I don't want my authority over you to be in a, a distraction or a burden to you. I don't want my apostolic authority to sour you on God's authority over you. And most of all, I don't want you to be distracted by my apostolic authority so that you don't see my love and God's love. This is what I really want you to see. And I want you to know that I trust God's love in this situation, even to the point where I'm willing to stay away and just let you hear from God. He didn't want to be a micromanager, I guess we could say, all right? So here, again, he refers to this letter he wrote, and he refers to a visit, and uh, the specific nature of the one sin that he dwells on in 1 Corinthians is why I think 1 Corinthians might be the severe letter. It's easy for us to look at these and say, well, it's doctrine, it's Bible doctrine, and so it's going to have some graphic stuff in it. But keep in mind, this is still a man who knows the people in Corinth. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a preacher come here 
spend some time with us, get to know us, and then either preach from the pulpit and name names or send a letter back. Somebody that we have, we have really become invested in. Somebody who has a you know, degree of authority, and he writes back and says, hey, listen, while I was there, I got to tell you, so-and-so is doing something. I was, uh, I'm going to keep this really vague. Not because I don't think any of you would know, I, there's, it would be one chance in a million, I think, that anybody in here would know the people I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, when I was working down at Canaan Land, there was uh, an issue with some people who were doing some work for the ministry. And they became close to the ministry. They actually lived, uh, uh, lived there on the property. And I began to see signs that there was uh, an illicit relationship going on between the wife in this, you know, of this family that came to work with us and one of the students. And I won't go into any details. It's just that I... Uh, I was concerned, and, and I was, it wasn't like, oh, God just revealed this to me. It was, come on, you've got to be blind not to see that there's something going on here. So I felt that biblically, the route to take was to go to them. I'm not going to tell somebody else. So I pulled this person aside and said, look, I'm not going to go so far as to accuse you of something here. I'm just going to tell you what it looks like. You are risking the ministry. You're risking your relationship. You're risking a lot here. So if there's something going on, just correct it. Stop it. Repent. And if there's not, I'm sorry. Because I have no word from the Lord on this. And again, I had to be really confident that something was going on before I even went that far. Next thing you know, I am being rebuked by my boss for daring to confront this person. You don't go, you don't go, how dare you make an accusation like that to somebody who's precious to me, blah, 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 blah. You should have come to me. And I say, Brother Mac, look, I'm trying to protect the ministry. There was nothing, this was nothing about this was an attack. Well, you were out of line, blah, 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 blah. It's one more of the things that caused friction between me and Brother Mac, right? Then somebody came to visit. This was probably three weeks, a month later, somebody who uh, who Brother Mac had a great deal of regard for. I'll leave them unnamed. But he came and spent some time with our ministry. And he pulled Brother Mac aside and just told him very sternly, you've got a problem here, Brother Mac, and told him exactly what he knew in the spirit was going on. And you know what it was? The thing that I knew was going on. But you see, there was this apostolic authority. It, and he wasn't an apostle, but he sort of walked in this role. So it was, things changed right after that. I mean, so there were some rule changes that took place on the spot as a result of a word from somebody who walked in this role. I didn't have that kind of freight with Mac Gober. Very few people did. I wasn't going to change his mind about anything. But this guy did with just a word. All right? So here's Paul with this apostolic authority. And he writes this letter to Corinth, people that he knows, people that he loves, but something is grieving him so badly that he calls out this sin, knowing that everybody who reads this letter is going to know exactly who he's talking about. Listen, I'm hearing some disturbing things about your church. 
The sectarianism, that could be a general thing. He says, but you know, there's sin named among you that isn't even named among the Gentiles, that there's a man in your midst who has his father's wife. And you imagine, imagine if they're reading this letter from the pulpit, and all of a sudden everybody in the, in the building turns around and goes, and they look at the guy. This is pretty severe. To me, this fits the, the, the description of a severe letter, Right? But you can also see how it might, if somebody's in sin and they're not, uh, they're, they're, they're not in, in a posture of repentance and humility, how they might respond to this. How might they? Oh, so you're telling me you're perfect? Hey, we all got our own issues. Why are you picking on my sin? This is exactly how we respond today, isn't it? Not we. We are much better than that. We are a mature, humble, repentant, believing church. But how does the church world generally respond? We don't want to, we're not going to, we're not out to offend anybody. We don't want to chase anybody away. We're all broken, so let's just, let's just all love, right? But Paul wrote this severe letter. And he says, and I think it's because of this, the specific nature of, of uh, 1 Corinthians that the letter he talks that, that caused this pain and that made his visit painful, I think it very much could have been that situation. Now, let me read the next passage, and you think about it. And tell me what you think. Again, our faith doesn't hang on this, but let me read uh, beginning in chapter, five, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now again, the broad interpretation of this is that during the painful visit, there was a faction at Corinth that rose up against Paul under the leadership of some rebellious individual. Perhaps going so far as to challenge Paul's apostolic authority. It's like, hey man, you came here, you founded this church, we appreciated it, but we've got our own pastors, we've got our own leaders, you don't need to be coming back here every six months, every year, year and a half to correct things. We're our own church. And this might very well be the case. But whatever happened, it caused division, it caused pain, and, uh, but, as, but again, restoration apparently was accomplished. This is what he's referring to, this, the restoration from verse 5 through verse 11, talking about the restoration and the forgiveness now that needs to happen. Now, there's some opposition remained, but the majority, by the time Paul wrote this, the majority of the church at Corinth was in Paul's corner. Now, the traditional interpretation of these verses, and the one that I lean toward, is that Paul is referring to that guy. That the man he's urging them to forgive is the one who received this stern rebuke in 1 Corinthians about these immoral, this immoral relationship with his uh, stepmom. You know, if they followed Paul's instructions, and if they put him out, if they, if they at least banned him from communion, which is what some people think it means when he says, don't even eat with such a one, whatever they did, ever, whatever form or level of uh, disfellowshipping or excommunication, whatever, it caused an uproar, 
And the uproar was led by the person, you know, the offender, who also became the chiefly offended one. But he repented. Whoever it was, whether it was this guy or whether it was the guy who was simply challenging Paul's apostolic authority, he repented. He came to himself, and he came back. He returned, and he was in the process of being restored. What Paul is doing, whether it's that guy or whether it's something bigger, you know, somebody who's actually rebelling against Paul, whoever it was, Paul's urging them to move forward. All right, now that he's back, let's forgive him. Put it behind you. You've forgiven him, so have I, so has God. Let's bury the whole unpleasant episode because otherwise, every time this guy gives you an opportunity, you're going to remind him of his past, you're going to dig this thing up, you're going to wave it in his face, and every time you do that, you are allowing Satan to drive a wedge of division into the church. If you're going to forgive him, let this be the end of it. You can't say, well, we forgive you, we're glad you're back, and then the first time he does something you don't like, you're going to say, yeah, you were the guy who... We can't do that about anything. Forgiveness means a fresh start. God's mercies are new every morning. Like the way uh, Longfellow put it, let the dead past bury its dead. Anyway, I was going to go on here because there's more stuff we can get into in this letter, but I kept getting drawn back to this uh, the last part of chapter 1, when Paul is talking about the yes and the no, and really the specific issue he's addressing is, I don't want you to think I'm a flip-flopper. I wasn't being flip when I told you I was going to come, and then I flopped when I didn't come. I was very serious about coming, and the whole next chapter is basically explaining, look, it took a lot to get me to change my mind. Here's why I did it. It was going to cause you a great deal of sorrow. The last time I came, we had to deal with such unpleasantness. And it really, I could tell, was beginning to rub a lot of you the wrong way, the way I was kind of heavy-handed. So I'm going to give you guys room to breathe and prove to you that I trust God to fix whatever's going on. And what I want to say about this situation that caused everybody so much pain is let's forgive, let's move on. I love you. Love me back. Love one another, etc. But now we go back to what he said at the core and the reason. And Paul didn't have to bring this up. He could have just said, hey, look, I'm human. Sometimes we make mistakes. My plans went awry. But he doesn't. He says, this is a serious business because I said yes, and when I say yes, it needs to be yes because that's exactly the way God is. God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to do this for you, and then say, yeah, I don't know what I was talking about. I should have never made that promise. I really don't want to do it for you. Uh, What I really meant was, sometimes I'll do it for you, sometimes I won't. No, he says, every promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Here's our application for today. I want you to think about the promises of God that you're aware of, the promises you know about. And a promise from God is anything in the Word of God where God says, I will I do, I am, or where one of the spirit-inspired writers says, he will, he does, he is. Psalm 103 is a great place to start. Forget none of his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, satisfies your mouth with good things, renews your strength. Ask yourself this. And think about all the promises of God. His promises of protection, his promises of provision, his promises of restoration, deliverance, right? And I want you to think right now, which of these promises would bring you 
to the point of the most fervent thanksgiving if, you were, if these promises were immediately manifested in your life. In other words, you know you've got the package. It's all part of the atonement. It's all part of the, the, the salvation package. Most of you believe these things. So you don't need to wave, raise, your, raise your hand, but kind of nod your head. You believe that God, you believe that God has saved us. Do you believe he, do you believe, along with salvation, he promises us healing? Abundant provision? Deliverance? Restoration? Protection? And yet, because we still live in a fallen world, because we still carry around with us this body of death, we still experience moments where we are not, no matter how spiritual you are, will you be humble enough to admit that there are at least moments when you are not walking in 100% manifestation of every one of these promises? Does sickness ever touch your body? Does lack ever affect your circumstances? Are you ever fearful? Are you ever depressed? Are there broken relationships in your life? Do things have control over us? Our appetites for certain things, whether they're essentially harmless habits or dangerous drugs or something else. These things happen, don't they? And depending on what you're going through right now, that's what I want you to think about. If you could have one promise be immediately manifested in your life, what would it be? And if it happened right now, what would your reaction be? Would you really, really praise him? If you're in sickness, you're dealing with sickness, if you're in pain, you're suffering from a disease, just how hard would you praise him if suddenly, I mean right now, the pain were gone? Lack, poverty, debt. How hard would you praise him if suddenly money were no longer a problem? Is there a relationship that's been severed by your sin or the sin of another person? How hard would you praise him if suddenly the offender or the offended returned to you with no ill will, fully restored to your life? A family member, a son, a daughter. How hard would you praise him for immediate, manifested freedom from depression, from fear? How about for the ability to sleep regularly and soundly? to have manifest wisdom for every situation, victory in every struggle. The list goes on. And we know what the word says. Let me give you a crass illustration. Suppose somebody gave you a Powerball ticket, because I know you wouldn't buy one, right? You've heard me talk about this. It's kind of like alcohol. I'm not going to preach a whole sermon about it. I don't think it's a sin. I don't think it's a good idea, and it's not a good investment. Some people use their disposable income different ways. But somebody gives you a Powerball ticket just to keep everything above board. And guess what? You find out that you possess the winning ticket, the winning ticket, the jackpot. And the jackpot's $250 million, whatever. Well, I'm not saying it, it is. I'm saying suppose it is. What do you feel like the second you realize you've got that, the winning ticket? I'll tell you what it feels like, because it happened. No, it didn't happen to me, sorry. 
Can you imagine, though? Instantly, the financial pressure slides off of you. Things that you didn't even realize had been eating you alive because how am I going to pay this? How am I going to get caught up on that? You suddenly don't feel any of that. You become generous to a level that you've never uh, experienced or thought about. You start making plans right now to bless your church, to bless your family, to bless your favorite ministries and charities. You are flat overjoyed, and you don't have a single dime in your pocket yet. You've got a winning ticket. You don't even know how long it's going to take you to get your hands on that money. You never really took it seriously. But suddenly you start thinking, I'm going to have to get a lawyer. I'm going to have to get a financial planner. I'm going to have to figure out how to keep this quiet because I don't want to advertise it on Facebook. What am I going to do to keep all these people from 20 years of my past coming and knocking on my door? And yet the overwhelming sensation is, I'm rich. And you don't have a dime in your pocket. It might be months before you see that money, before things are in order enough to where you can receive the cash. But your whole worldview has changed. Right or wrong? When it comes to the promise of healing and provision, the promise needs to look to us just like that. I don't have the manifestation, but I have the promise. And that's just as good until the manifestation occurs in terms of my attitude. Hebrews 11.1. What's it say? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The substance. It's what we have. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And yet, when the manifestation comes, there's a level of praise there if we are given to praise at all, and shame on us indeed if we're not. There's a level of praise at the manifestation, at the moment of manifestation, that's typically not there until the manifestation. And I think the bigger that gap is, the longer we're going to wait to see the manifestation. Now, I've told you this story before, so I'm not going to give you the long version. I'm going to give you the short version, very short version. When I had my back issue the second time, the long time, It was a dark, dark period of several several weeks. Can't remember exactly when it started. I just know I'd been in pain to the point where I almost stopped expecting to feel better. I was still speaking every single day to my back. I still was confessing my healing every single day, but it was just a matter of this is what I'm supposed to do. I didn't feel it until we had that, that, that Saturday morning that I came out Men's prayer had been in there praying for me. They told me they'd been praying for me. I had this, I can only describe it as a vision, but I know it wasn't an open vision. It was just this sudden revelation, this picture in my mind of these great men of God swinging their swords for me because I could no longer swing the sword for myself. But that's the day my worldview changed. That was the day I saw the winning numbers on my ticket. That was the day I knew that I knew and rejoiced in my healing, but it was four more days, five more days, before I received the manifestation. But the praise and the worldview were happening for five days before I felt it in my back. And when I felt it in my back, it was suddenly. And I can remember sitting right there, where my family's sitting now, 
a church service leading up to Christmas and singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which I still can't sing without crying, just like I can't read Luke chapter 2 without crying. can't read it out loud. And we get to the part where it says, Risen with healing in his wings. Man, I just was, and I'd, I'd, and I'd received the manifestation by this time, but I'd just begin to gush. Oh, wow. Risen with healing in his wings. Yes, thank God. But you see, that's pretty much the way I felt that Saturday before I got the manifestation. I knew it, but something just clicked. Oh, thank God. He has healed me. He has provided for me. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Look back at this. Referred to this earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Once again, when we reach the point where it really is all up to God, that is not a bad place to be. Some people see it as, well, I was sure hoping this would work. I was sure hoping this would work. I'd sure hoping this would work. But they didn't. So now God's going to have to do something. We need to be starting with God has done it. He might do it through this. He might do it through that. But God has done it. The promise is there. Oh, we miss, we even as faith people said this before. What do we know? Faith begins where the will of God is known. But a lot of our faith confession is really more geared toward getting God to do something rather than praising him for the fact that he's already done it. Truly believing he's already done it. We really do have more faith in the numbers on a ticket months before we see any money than we do in the written word of God. We have more faith in, in yeah, never mind the, winning the ticket. What do we, when, we, when we go pick up our paychecks, it's payday, or you got direct deposit. How many of you wring your hands and wonder, oh, I hope it, hope it gets there today. Hope my paycheck's there today. I already put in that word. You know you're getting paid, right? I mean, it's really an unusual situation if the paycheck isn't there. We expect it. God's word is more sure. And if we believed that, like we're supposed to believe it, we would see the manifestations more quickly and more often. I'm utterly convinced of that. Were you paying attention to the word that uh, God delivered us through, pa- uh, through Pastor Mike this morning? I, I was writing just some quick notes from it. I couldn't begin to write the whole thing down, but some of these things jumped out at me because I knew what, we were ta- what I was talking about today. Uh, and I'm, I didn't get this word for word, but if you praise and worship me with all your heart, you will walk in power you never walked in. Now, really, when we begin walking in power we've never walked in, that's when we want to start praising God with all of our hearts. When do we really want to thank him for healing? When we feel healed. And there's nothing wrong with that. I get that. When do we really want to thank him for provision? Woohoo! When we've got it in our hands. But when we start praising him and thanking him for the provision of the healing, then we're going to begin to walk in provision and healing that we've never walked in before. He didn't say, hang in there, I'm going to make a way. I have made a way. This is continuing the word here. You'll begin 
to see my power resident in your life. And that's the last thing I got before I stopped writing and wanted to get back, in, uh, back into just listening. You'll begin to see my power resident in your life. Not I'm going to begin operating powerfully in your life. The assumption in that word, as I, as I received it, Pastor Mike, was that I'm operating in your life. But as you praise me, as you worship me, as you're supposed to, you're going to see it. You're going to see it. So, what is our response to this going to be? First, first things first. These promises that God makes, he makes to his people. That's the one caveat. He's no respecter of persons. You don't have to be, you don't have to be, a, a, have to have certain background, have certain membership credentials, anything like that. Uh, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, these promises are for you. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, they're not. Not that God doesn't reserve the right to do nice things or show mercy, but he is in covenant with his son, Jesus Christ. So if we are in Christ, all these covenant blessings and promises are ours. But if you are not in covenant with Christ Jesus, you can still cry out to God, but you don't have a leg to stand on in terms of faith. You can't put your trust in him until you've trusted in the cross. So my question for you right now is this. Uh, Have you done that? Are you born again? Are you a believer? Are you saved? Have you made a commitment to Jesus Christ? Have you recognized that the death he died, he died for your sin? He died so that you could be restored into this right relationship with God the Father. If you haven't done that, when we start singing here in a a couple minutes, you come up here and let me pray for you. Let's get you saved. And it's not like, well, how long do I have to be saved before I get the promises? The promises come with salvation. It's all one package. You get saved, filled with the Spirit, healed, delivered, everything. It's all yours. Everybody else, which is most of you, because I know most of you are saved, most of you are spirit-filled. I want you to think about that thing. Go ahead and stand up with me now. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.